Uh, if you've got a Bible, please open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you haven't, there's some down the, well, on the end rows of every seat, uh, end seat of every row. Get that right? Um, so grab a Bible. 1 Peter chapter 4, carrying on our series in, in this book. And I'm going to pray. Well, we'll read first and then we'll pray. So let's do that together. While you're still finding it, thanks, Jonathan, for leading us in communion. That was great. Love your enthusiasm. Pointing us to the end day, last day. And here's what Peter has to say to us. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. For to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let me pray and then we'll jump in. Lord, we come to your word again aware that we need your help. Aware that we need your life-giving spirit to bring illumination to our hearts and our minds. So that we might behold wonderful things in your word and it might do us good. We thank you that your promise is that your word never goes forth from you and returns to you void. And so we ask that you would do all that you have destined and predestined to accomplish this morning through the preaching of your word. And may we, this church, be strengthened to love and serve one another for the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but I was reading this week online uh, a Daily Express article. It's not because I read the Daily Express often. It's just that I googled end of the world because that's where Peter begins and came up with this article. It was actually published. This, it happened this week, 22nd of May, 2019, with the headline that said this. Humanity has three weeks left to live as one apocalypse doommonger predicts the end of the world is coming soon. And then it describes this chap, a, strangely enough, a U.S. preacher who called Ronald Wineland. Sorry to our American friends. Don't mean to offend you, but we just think all Americans are a little bit crazy. Um, perhaps you're the exception to the rule. Hope so. <laughs> anyway, this guy, Ronald Wineland, he wrote on his own website, and the Daily Express picked it up. He said, the end of the world is going to be on June the 9th. And so you only have 18 days to get ready. He then went on to say, the world is close to a final world war, a nuclear war that will break out on the earth. And it's nuclear war that will trigger Christ's return because he will come to intervene in the affairs of mankind and stop that war. And then he goes, when the Daily Express uh, questioned him about why he was so certain that the end of the world would be June the 9th, he said this, well, I have been known to be wrong before. When I first did the count, it should have been 
Easter 2012. And then I recounted and thought it was Pentecost 2013. But now I'm sure it's June the 9th, 2019. Or maybe 2020. (laughs) So he obviously doesn't know when the end of the world is. But it got me thinking as I read that and as I read Peter who says the end of the world is at hand. What would... What would happen to us? How would we prepare? What would we do to get ready if we really only had now 14 days to June the 9th? What would we do? How would we prepare? Maybe we'd take all of our life savings and spend it on something that we we never thought we could have, a fast car or a luxury holiday. Maybe we would try and find solace in sex and drugs and rock and roll. Or maybe we would just devote the time remaining to our families. Well, Peter gives us God's way of preparing for the end. Peter's going to tell us God's answer to how we should prepare for when the end is nigh because he does agree with the one thing that Peter and this guy Ronald Wyman uh, agree on is that the end of the world is, is near. Because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension into heaven, he has inaugurated the last days. We live in the last days. The end is near and so we are called to prepare. But it's not a call to just ditch everything and live for ourselves. Neither is it even a call to extraordinary or radical Christian living. In fact, the things that Peter calls us to are very ordinary, very normal, and very essential for Christians. And you'll notice the refrain all the way through the passage, this refrain that occurs three times. Love, serve, care for one another. For the one another's. So Peter says, as the end is near and your exiles living in a land that doesn't belong to you and is not your home, your time is short, so now let me urge you to action. And he urges us to action in three ways. He wants us to pray, he wants us to love, and he wants us to serve. And so if you want to sum it up in one sentence, this is what I would say. In light of the end and in times of great persecution and great pressure, The church must support one another through prayer and love and service. So that's what we're called to, prayer, love, and service. So I want us to take each of those three elements this morning and just uh, scratch the surface on how we're to do that so that we might be ready for the end. Let's begin with prayer. This is verse 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, so the result, because of all things Uh, are coming to an end because God is drawing a close on history. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, or perhaps in some translations, so that you can pray. Okay, so as the end draws near, and often there's a lot of fear involved in this scaremongering that's involved about what's going to happen on the end times, and people read the newspapers, they're looking for wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and Middle Eastern conflicts and, uh, and small groups who withdraw from society and go up to a mountaintop and just gaze at the clouds waiting for the end to come. Uh, people lose their minds. People go, can go a bit crazy when they think about the end times. And here Peter says, don't go crazy, be self-controlled. And sober-minded. That word sober-minded is is a similar word is used in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus heals a demon-possessed man and he sat listening to the the words and the teaching of Jesus and, and Mark records he was in his right mind. 
He was no longer demon-possessed. He was in his right mind. It's the same word or same root word. Sober-minded, in our right mind. So Peter says, when the end draws near, don't panic. Don't be like a maniac. Don't be like someone demon-possessed with hysteria and fear and worry. Pray instead. Pray with a clear mind. And pray regularly and consistently. Think about what Jesus did at the last, the last hours of his life before he went to the cross for us. What did he do? He went out to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed. And he called on Peter and James and John to pray. But Peter, perhaps remembering his own failures in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he fell asleep when he should have been praying, tells us, Be self-controlled and sober-minded in your prayers. Don't be like me. I failed. Pray self-controlled and sober-mindedly. Think sensibly about the time that is left. Think about the brevity of life and use your time to pray. What should we pray for? Well, we should pray for those who don't yet know Jesus, that they would call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Should pray for our brothers and sisters who are struggling under pressure and persecution that God might sustain them and keep them to the end. We should pray for our own hearts as Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11. Um, do not be, do not lead us in, do not let us be led into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Forgive our sins. Those are the kind of things we should be praying for sober-mindedly. And self-controlled. An awareness of the end. Peter wants us to get hold of this. An awareness that the end is coming. That God is bringing a close to this form, this age of history. Should provoke us to regular and faithful and consistent and humble and dependent. And hopeful and faith-filled prayers for one another. When the church is faced with great pressure to conform to the world, which we are. And when the church is faced with great persecution, because we won't conform to the world, which we are increasingly experiencing, it's, it could be easy for Christians to despair. But Peter here gives us a, a pair of night vision goggles, if you like. He says, pray, be sober-minded and self-controlled. Look beyond the current darkness to the, the glory that awaits. So he, all, this whole passage is working towards verse 11 and the doxology. To, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. For, to Christ be the glory. He says, look through with your night vision goggles the, the, um, the current darkness to the light at the end of the tunnel. And live differently. As the end draws near, pray, self-controlled and sober-minded. Don't be panicked. Don't be fearful. Let's trust God's eternal purposes are being worked out for God's glory. So the first thing is pray. Second thing is love. You notice this in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. It was in Matthew 24, verse 12, that Jesus told his disciples that when the end draws near, it'll be easy for your love to grow cold. That was a warning that he gave. As the end draws, here's how you'll know the end will draw near. Love for one another will wane. It'll grow cold. But here, Peter wants to stoke the fires of love for one another. 
in the church family because he heard those words of Jesus. And he says, if the end is drawing near, let's heed the warning of Jesus. Our love could grow cold, but all the more now, let's stoke it. Let's keep on loving one another earnestly. That word is really do it. Love one another sincerely and genuinely and authentically and deeply and keep on doing it just as we have been doing it. Don't let it grow cold. You see, as the end draws near, as, as time closes, the world is only going to get further and further away from God. And so we need one another to love one another, to support one another, to care for one another, so that we can stand firmly and live faithfully for Jesus in a world that doesn't follow him. And if we're isolated and, and insulated from other Christians, we can easily be picked off. But in a, in a mob, in a herd, with a kind of a, a herd mentality, we can protect one another. Think about meerkats. Think about, you see the little cute meerkats that you see in the zoo? Well, they, they're a, a small family group that works together. They use, the term is cooperative behavior so that they can breed and survive and live and uh, they, they protect one another. So Peter here calls us, he doesn't use the word meerkats, obviously, but that's a good way of remembering it. Live as a meerkat. Come together as a family unit, a close-knit, bonded family unit, and work together. Use cooperative behavior. Look out for one another. Care for one another. Love one another so that we can be protected till the end. So that nothing is going to come upon us and take over us and kill us off. So that no predator is going to be able to pick us off. Let's have a mob mentality. Love one another. This is a theme that he's already expressed in chapters 1 and 2 and 3. Such is the need for Christians to love one another as the end draws near. Now, Christian love can be defined in many different ways, and it can be uh, expressed in many different ways. But here Peter gives us two particular ways that we're to love one another. He tells us that we love one another by overlooking sin, and we love one another by showing hospitality. So how do we love one another by overlooking sin? Well, let's just think about this and think about the context of the original readers. As they were under great pressure and as they were under great persecution from living in the Roman Empire, the godless Roman Empire, uh, there was great pressure to keep worshipping the gods of the day, to give in to the idolatry and the immorality that they were engulfed with. And as they lived in that world, it would have been easy for church members to start judging one another's faithfulness. So maybe some of the members, maybe this side of the room, imagine this, this side of the room, living faithfully for God, undergoing persecution, experiencing all sorts of slander and gossip and malice and, and pressure to conform, and yet you guys are living faithfully. Maybe this side... Sorry, but this side, you kind of capitulated. You gave in to the, the temptations to return to the old way of life that Peter warned about us last week in verse 3. You're giving in to going back to drunkenness and orgies and sexual immorality and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. And then you come together on a, on a Sunday and this side goes, we're better than them. Oh, we're more godly than they are. We're standing firm for Jesus, whereas you guys, you've capitulated. 
And then this side of the room looks on and is a mixture of guilt and shame and, oh, we've let the Lord down. But you look on at this guy and you think, oh, they're a bunch of arrogant Christians. I don't want to be like them. And immediately the aisle down the center speaks of division. And Peter here says, no, love one another by overlooking one another's sins. By overlooking one another's sins. It's not that in overlooking sin we treat it lightly or we try and sweep it under the carpet or we think that it's inconsequential. He's repeatedly told us that Christians should be pursuing a countercultural holiness. We should be concerned about sin. We shouldn't ignore sin because if we ignore our sin, then we won't have a compelling and a powerful, faithful witness to a watching world. But we overlook sin by forgiving one another, giving one another the benefit of the doubt, by being gracious to one another and not judging one another. I think here Peter is referring to Proverbs 10 verse 12 where the writer of Proverbs says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So to love one another by overlooking sin, it's, it means we don't go around looking for faults in each other. We don't spend our time and our energy glorying in or celebrating or lingering over the weaknesses and the flaws and the faults and the sins of others. That's what the haters do. That's what the writer to the proverb says. Haters go around looking for ammunition so that they can shoot each other down. Haters go around using the sins of other people as a springboard for attack. Did you hear this about Jonathan? Oh, let me tell you. He shouldn't have been leading communion this morning because he did this in the week. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're called to love one another. That our posture and our inclination is to give one another the benefit of the doubt. To extend the mercy of God that we've experienced to each other. To overlook sin. This, this also includes, like overlooking sin does not mean that you just let things go and you let things go and you let things go and then one day, boom, let me give you 15 years of your sins. I, I've been in conversations like that. Okay, They are not nice. Where you think, my brother loves me. He cares for me. He's overlooked my sin. And then all of a sudden, let me tell you, you did this and you said this and you were like this and I hated it and I hate you. That's not overlooking sin. If we're to overlook sin, we're not to hoard them up and store them up for a day of wrath. We're to be as God does, to forgive, to love, to extend mercy as we've been shown mercy. Now, the application here, above all, keep loving, keep on loving one another means that we can all be more loving towards one another than we are right now. None of us has crossed the line and arrived at the destination of perfect love for one another. So it's easy for us to love each other when we're lovable and, and kind of stop there. But what about loving the unlovely? What about loving each other when we're not lovable? The word here, cover over, actually is a, is a word that means to stretch or to expand or to extend. It's that kind of word. And so Peter here calls us to love one another in such a way that we stretch beyond the limits of our current love. We stretch beyond the limits of our current mercy and forgiveness towards one another to love one another in, with a depth and an endurance 
that matches Christ's love for us. That we forgive our brothers and sisters just as Christ loved us. And how did he love us? He stretched out his arms out wide in love to cover and pay for ultimately our sins. And so when people sin against us, we're called to stretch out our love and show mercy as we've received mercy. Here's what Spurgeon says. He who grows in grace remembers that he is but dust and he therefore does not expect his fellow Christians to be anything more. He overlooks ten thousands of their faults because he knows his God overlooks twenty thousands in his own case. He does not expect perfection in the creature and therefore he's not disappointed when he does not find it. When our virtues become more mature, when we grow to be more like Christ, we shall not be more tolerant of evil, but we shall be more tolerant of infirmity, more hopeful for the people of God, and certainly less arrogant in our criticism. Wise words. Let's love one another by overlooking sin. The other element of loving one another is by showing hospitality. This is in verse 9. Now, it would be easy to misunderstand hospitality. as just, hey, invite your friends back after church for lunch, and let's just have food and fellowship together. Let's just enjoy time. But in the first century, hospitality went much deeper than that. Churches didn't meet in buildings. They couldn't rent places. So often to meet publicly, they would, people would have to open up their houses and their homes and their family life week in, week out for the whole church to come together in all of its diversity and with all of its difficulties. And Peter here calls us to show hospitality in such a way that we open up our lives and our homes and our families week in, week out to one another with all of our diversity and with all of our difficulties. You know, it's said that the Englishman's home is his castle. And I was thinking about this, you know, I actually quite like the idea of living in a castle. And I can treat my house like a castle where I want to retreat to the castle for rest and relaxation and refuge and privacy. And I want to pull up the drawbridge as quickly as I can so that nobody else can get to me. Right? The Englishman's home is his castle. And maybe I will let the drawbridge down occasionally to let a few people across with restricted access for certain amounts of time. And only the ones that I like. But Peter here calls us to something different. He wants us to see that our homes are gifts from God that we should open up and share with the church. That we can't live as our home being our castle. Instead, it's supposed to be an open house, community center, a drop-in for the church. And here's the kicker. You see that? It's not just open up your home, but do it without grumbling. All right? Do it without grumbling. We're to do it joyfully and gladly. We're to welcome one another joyfully and gladly. Now, this amazes me because the Christians of 2,000 years ago and the Christians of today, me, we're remarkably the same. We obviously are prone to the same common temptation to complain and to grumble. Do you know what? It's not loving and it's welcoming to invite others into your home and to complain about it. 
Oh no, we might not complain to their faces, but we might complain beforehand. We go, oh, this can be a lot of work to have those Smiths around. There's eight of them. Where are we going to find eight extra chairs? And they eat a lot. Have you seen the size of them? Those boys, three boys, six of their dad. It's like four foot two, but they're six foot six. And they must eat a lot. How am I going to afford that? I'm going to have to take a second job just to pay for them to come round this week. And then we come round and it's all smiles and we eat you out of house and home and then we leave and you go, going to need a week to recover. Look at the mess that they've made. Who knew that eight people could make such a mess? Oh my goodness. The carpet is ruined. There's chocolate on the walls. I can't believe they let Devon swing from the light shade. This is why June doesn't invite us around anymore, because it's all true. They were so rude. They were so ungrateful. They outstayed their welcome. They ate us out of house and home, and we complain. But Peter says, don't be like that. Don't complain. Don't complain at the guests in your house. Let's, let's do hospitality without grumbling without complaining. Let's do it joyfully. Let's do it gladly as an expression of our love for one another. Don't do hospitality, virtue signaling, how ho- what a wonderful host you are. Don't virtue signal, oh, I'm such a great cook, come round and see. Don't virtue signal about how clean your home is. Let's just use our homes to love and care for one another. Imagine the, the things that can happen around your dining room table. The conversations that could be had the fellowship that could be enjoyed, the encouragement that could be given and received, the evangelism that could take place if you've got unbelievers there, the discipleship of young and old, the counseling, the comfort in crisis, the prayers that could take place. That's what Peter's thinking about. As the end draws near, care for one another, host one another, love one another, and doing it Do it willingly. Let's have in mind the fact that the Father has opened his home and his family to us. And he's invited us to draw near to his table and to feast with him. As John pointed out from Revelation 19, one day we will join the Father at his table and feast forever at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he's done that and he's invited us by pure mercy alone. So let's extend that kind of welcome and mercy to others, to one another. And then thirdly and finally, we're to pray, we're to love, and we're to serve. Pray, love, and serve. This is really connected and follows hot off the heels of the hospitality command. Because earnest love welcomes one another and then serves one another. Verse 10, Peter tells us that every Christian has been given a gift or gifts from God, from the storehouse of God's grace to use, to serve one another. Look at what he says. As each has received a gift, each of us has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That means that not, we've not all been gifted in the same way. Hallelujah. We're different. We've got different gifts. There's a multifaceted variety of God's gifts to us as people. So no two of us are the same. But we're to use the gifts for the same purpose. 
We're to steward the gifts for the good of others, not as a badge that we wear to proclaim how great we are, but as benefit and blessing to others so we can give glory to the giver of the gifts. And so to each one of us in this church family and to those who aren't here this morning, every single one of us has been given a gift through which we are intended to serve and strengthen one another in our journey as exiles through a hostile world. We're to strengthen one another for the journey to heaven that now continues through this world of hate against Christians. And each one of us has been given a gift to encourage and to bless as we walk together, as we lock arms together as a church family. Now in verse 10, Peter seems to think that the rich variety of gifts, which are an expression of the multifaceted richness and generosity of our God, just are almost impossible to detail and to classify. So he just gives us two very broad categories. Now these aren't classes of gift. He's not saying one is better than the other. He's not talking about hierarchy, just categories. And he says there's speaking gifts and there's serving gifts. So if you've got a speaking gift, it's... It's not the the ability to make small talk in awkward conversations, although that would be great, wouldn't it? To break out in, in conversation beyond the weather. That's what we Brits need. It's not the gift of the gab. It's not that you could sell ice to Eskimos. It's a speaking gift by which we minister the word to one another in ways that strengthen one another's faith. And edify one another. So a speaking gift is any gift that serves up a healthy diet of the word to other Christians. So that the the body of Christ, the church, might be strengthened and spiritually fed and nourished and cared for. In a way that builds itself up together in love. To be the body that that is fit for our head, Jesus Christ. So speaking gifts might include preaching and teaching. Like... This is happening right now, and like Liz is teaching the kids out there, a a teaching gift, a speaking gift. It might include teaching the children or the youth or a Bible study or a small group or the life group, the singles on a Sunday night, or other specific groups as uh, meet together during the week. It might be a gift of prophecy or tongues with interpretation. On a Sunday morning, it might be exhortation or private encouragement. It might be going to someone and speaking the truth in love to them as we preach the gospel to one another on a daily basis and encourage one another in Christ. It might be sitting around the coffee table and engaging in some counsel from God's word into the life situation of someone else. It could be being uh, leading us in the word in song, if you like, in music ministry, in worship, as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly as we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Colossians 3:15 and 16. Those are the kind of speaking gifts. And Peter tells us that if we have been given a speaking gift, we should use it humbly, recognizing that we, he says, I, I get humble from the fact that he says, speak as one speaking the oracles of God, recognizing the great responsibility that we have. Now, when he says speaking the oracles of God, I don't think he says, like, what I'm saying to you now should be written down and put into the scriptures. Like somehow I deliver fresh revelation from God to you. No, the speaking gifts are bringing illumination to God's existing words so that it might be made known to his people and build us up. 
and God might be glorified. And then there's serving gifts. So if speaking gifts are kind of word ministry, serving gifts are kind of works ministry, doing good deeds. Now, again, these are not lesser deeds, they're lesser gifts, they're just different gifts. Perhaps they're more practical, nonetheless vital for the whole well-being of the church, but they might be gifts that help one another practically, physically, to be fed and nourished and cared for and strengthened. So they might be gifts of mercy, gifts of administration, being on the sound team or set up, making meals for someone in the week, visiting the sick, going to visit uh, and mentor someone in prison, being involved in the food bank, or benevolence and financial support for the care and needy in the church, or any other spirit-empowered work of service that we do to bless the church and see the church built up in love. And Peter says, if you've got that kind of gift, do it, use it, exercise it with the strength that God supplies. Do it humbly again, relying on God, not our own efforts. And do it to bless one another and bring glory to God. So Peter's point here is this. Every single one of us has been given a gift through which to serve this church. No one was at the back of the queue and God ran out when he was distributing the gifts. Nobody got two and they said, sorry, the quota's gone. You'll have to go without this month or this year or this lifetime. Everybody has a gift. Everyone has a part to play to serve one another. It's the same thing that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, 11 to 16. God has given gifts. The ascended Christ has risen and he's ascended to heaven and now he's distributed gifts. And there's word ministry and there's works ministry. There's word ministry that equips the saints to do works ministry so that the whole church might function together properly, that it might grow up in love, that we might reach maturity in Jesus Christ. So there's no insignificant gifts and there's no insignificant Christians. Every single one of us has a part to play in this church and in the church that we're part of. No one is unneedy. No one is unnecessary. Everybody is important. Now, we can talk much about the church being the body of Christ, and we have done, and we've, we've reflected at time to times over in, in past sermons about 1 Corinthians 12 and Paul's illustration of the body. And maybe you sit in your chair right now and you think, yeah, I hear that, and I can see some people are the arm and some people are the leg and some people are the nose and the eyes and the ears and the neck and whatnot, but I feel like the appendix. And maybe you sit there and you think, I, I feel like the appendix. And you know, because perhaps you've had your appendix removed, that actually the appendix is pretty useless. And you could whip it out and nobody misses it. Maybe you feel like the appendix to this church. You feel like, you know, if I don't come, nobody, nobody misses me. I haven't really got anything to offer. Just kind of sit in the back and... You know, go through the motions and then leave. Well, let me tell you, I had my appendix removed when I was 17 years old, okay? And 24 years later, you can still see the scar. Right, it's right there. Okay. You might think you're the appendix, but what happens when the appendix is removed from the body is there's a scar. 
because the body is damaged, even if the appendix, who medics will tell you is useless, and I'm perfectly normal, aren't I, without mine? <laughs> All right. Thanks for not laughing at that joke. <laughs> Makes me feel better. Yeah. I'm perfectly normal without mine. But there's a scar. The body is incomplete. So even if we feel like the appendix, we must recognize every one of us is a gift. Every one of us is an important part. We can't do without any of us because if we try to be, uh, I'm unimportant, I'm not needed, we'll be scarred. The body will be damaged. Peter wants us to love and serve one another with the gifts that God has given to us. So we pray, we love and we serve as the end draws near. And then it all culminates in verse 11, where Peter finishes with a doxology, a prayer of praise, that our loving, serving, and praying for one another should all be done with the ultimate aim of glorifying God. And as the end draws near, and as, the, as God draws history to a close, ready for the next age to come, and the marriage feast of the Lamb, even under great pressure and persecution of the current age, we're called to love, to serve, to pray, to keep our heads, to pray hard, to love well, to welcome much, to serve joyfully as elect exiles, following Jesus in a world that doesn't follow him. And we're to do it ultimately for God's glory. That Christ might be glorified in Everything in our praying, in our loving, in our serving, and in our church. For to him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.